what a millennial Biden voter thinks about race. If you haven't spoken to a millennial Harris Biden supporter, continue listening to this for a better understanding of the ignorance that critical race theory, CRT, results in, which in turn should make it clear how critically important it is for President Trump to be reelected. Following Monday's article about President Trump's outstanding decision to prohibit federal agencies from funding critical race theory, I had a Facebook discussion with a millennial who has swallowed the destructive ideology hook, line, and lethal sinker. Our discussion exposed the ignorance of those who have been trained by exposure to only one set of beliefs on race, beliefs that have been promulgated by federal agencies, government schools, the arts, and even corporate America. Critical race theory is embedded in re-education programs euphemistically called diversity training or sensitivity training or anti-bias training. Like a cancer, critical race theory has metastasized throughout America. Critical race theory divides society into two groups, oppressors and oppressed, based on their race or skin color. Those who are white, lowercase w, are racist oppressors, even if they harbor no racist impulses. Those who are black, or Latinx, are the intrinsically non-racist oppressed, even if they detest whites or Jews and say so openly, as does Jacob Blake Sr., the father of the Kenosha man who was shot while resisting the police. Critical race theory encourages blacks, Hispanics, and indigenous peoples to see themselves as perpetual victims in a system rigged by whites to victimize them. Critical race theory teaches that the lots in life of persons of color, or rather persons of certain colors, cannot improve unless colorless people spend a few hundred years self-flagellating for their icky colorlessness. Most diabolical, critical race theory robs colorful persons of a sense of agency in their own lives. In addition, critical race theory promotes a wildly imbalanced view of American history that overemphasizes America's flaws while ignoring the magnificent successes American principles have had in eradicating racial injustice and integrating people groups from all over the world. So here is my debate with the ill-informed millennial, which began with this sarcastic comment from him. He wrote, Yes, teaching the history of our racist past is such a tragedy. Continue being racist. I responded, How specifically have you been complicit in advancing racism? What specific racist words have you uttered and racist acts have you committed? Holocaust survivor and author of Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, said the idea of collective guilt is the very idea on which Hitler's regime depended, and you seem to be advancing it. Here's what Viktor Frankl said, quote, There is no such thing as collective guilt. Anyone who assigns collective guilt to every Austrian or German citizen between the ages of zero and 50 is committing a reprehensible and insane act. It would be reprehensible if it were not insane, and it would be a relapse into the Nazi ideology of collective family guilt. Let this be said to all those who believe they have a right to expect people to feel guilty or even ashamed of something they did not do or fail to do, but something their parents or grandparents had to answer for? I'll tell you, I think there are only two races of people, those who are decent people and those who are not. 
That distinction goes right through every nation and within nations right through every political party and every other group. The millennial responded, Simply by living in this country, we participate in racism. We have never come to terms with the millions of lives ruined so that our country could be the prosperous one it is. Teaching that history is a step towards making it right. I responded, ah, I see. One becomes a racist by simply being born in America. Being racist, in your bizarre view, has nothing to do with holding racist views, harboring racist feelings, speaking racist words, or engaging in racist acts. Well, that wasn't Frederick Douglass's view of racism or Dr. Martin Luther King's. I'll stand with them. What is your evidence that we, whoever that is, have never come to terms with the suffering caused by slavery and Jim Crow laws? And what does coming to terms entail? Which schools don't teach about America's history of slavery and Jim Crow laws? Schools have been teaching about racism for 50 years. And what about the millions of lives being ruined by fatherlessness, out-of-wedlock births, divorce, and the democratic policies that incentivize all of those conditions and result in urban crime? The millennial answered, Dr. King fought for reparations. Racism isn't just using a racial slur. We, as in our country, our government, our people, we sweep slavery and its horrors under the rug as something that happened and ended 170 years ago, except it didn't, and its effects continue to this day. Schools teach a myth of slavery, that after the Civil War, everything was great for everyone. The lasting effects of Jim Crow are not taught. The 1619 Project addresses this, but you're arguing it needs not be used because it hurts the stoic fable of American exceptionalism. No Democrat policies or Republican contribute to any of those things. Those things affect all communities. It is a function of our broken system. I responded, I never argued that racism is just using a racial slur. I specifically referred to thoughts, feelings, words, and actions. You apparently believe that racism is not constituted by thoughts, feelings, beliefs, words, or deeds. And that's how you justify calling people who are not racist, racists. But you see, you don't get to define racism for everyone else. I realize leftists have no problem using newspeak, but the rest of us have no ethical obligation to submit to your Big Brother-esque tactic of redefining language to advance a political cause. One could argue that all the affirmative action policies implemented in the wake of the civil rights movement constitute reparations. Now, over 150 years after the abolition of slavery, cash payments made by people who have never owned slaves or even had a racist thought to blacks who were never enslaved is manifestly unjust. Moreover, would blacks who are not descendants of slaves or who are not descendants of anyone who endured Jim Crow laws receive cash payments? What about descendants of black slave owners? Do they receive or pay reparations? What about descendants of blacks in Africa who sold their fellow blacks into slavery? Do they receive or pay reparations? What about descendants of abolitionists? Should they have to pay reparations? Should descendants of Democrats who opposed abolition and descendants of Democrats who implemented policies that destroyed the black family, destroyed urban schools, 
and created the murderous urban blight we see in every Democrat-controlled city have to pay more than other whites? What is your conclusive evidence that schools teach that, quote, after the Civil War, everything was great for everyone? Show me the documentation for that claim. Show me a textbook that makes that claim. Since every school teaches about the Civil Rights Movement, which came 100 years after the Civil War, how could schools teach that after the Civil War, everything was great for everyone? Nicole Hannah-Jones, author of The Awful 1619 Project, has been forced to admit by liberal historians that there are many historical inaccuracies in her 1619 Project. Further, she has recently said the 1619 Project is not history, and Jones is a bigoted polemicist. What isn't taught in public schools is the lasting effect, or effects, of Democrat policies that exploit blacks for their votes and then destroy their communities. How about immersing yourself in the writing of conservative scholars Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, and John McWhorter, all black men who have experienced actual racism? And maybe wander around the website 1776 Unites, where you will read this from Dr. Harold A. Black, Emeritus Professor of Finance at the University of Tennessee and a black man raised in the South. I quote him, Those who insist on according blacks' victim status are guilty of perpetuating the caricatures of black people made famous by Step and Fetch It, Little Black Sambo, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Mandingo. Given that caricatures are parodies, victimhood is little more than an excuse. Convincing some that they cannot achieve because they are black flies in the face of this paradox. How can a high-achieving black person truthfully tell another black person that their lack of achievement is because of their race? I grew up with parents who, because of their upbringing, neither tolerated excuses nor believed in victimhood. We lived in southwest Atlanta's all-black enclave. As a result, I had never had a conversation with a white person until I became the first black male freshman at the University of Georgia in 1966. Through the news, we saw images of white women cursing and spitting on black children trying to go to school in Clinton, Tennessee and Little Rock, Arkansas, and the horrifying images of Emmett Till's beaten body, and later those of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. These events and others reinforced the feeling among my peers that most whites were violent, uneducated, and best avoided. My first day on campus, these feelings quickly dissipated when I met white students who became my friends despite some name-calling and ostracizing from their peers. As a result, I never dreamed of telling my parents about any of the incidents that occurred during my freshman year as the first and only black male living in a dorm. I knew that I could not come into the house with C marks, saying the average grades were because someone would break my windows most nights and I could not study. My father would have said, then find a place to study. So I did. No excuses, no whining, no victims. Nevertheless, growing up in the segregated South prompted me to ask my parents why they didn't leave until my college years, though largely left alone if they knew their place, blacks in the South endured a reign of terror. A black person could be killed by a white who was not likely to be prosecuted. Indeed, two of my mother's cousins were lynched in 1913 and their killers were never arrested. 
Throughout my family's history, we have been guided by choice and responsibility, not by victimhood. Therefore, the notion of reparations for slavery puzzles me. The answer, of course, lies in the cult of victimhood that seeks to trivialize the stunning accomplishments of our people from the day they set foot in America to their proud descendants. There actually have been reparations aplenty. The war on poverty has spent over $23 trillion in reparations since 1965. So, even though slavery was evil, cruel, and harsh, we are a proud people who have prospered despite the odds. We are only hampered when we listen to people who demean us by insisting that racism prevents us from being full participants in society despite all the evidence to the contrary. Read John Sibley Butler's account of black entrepreneurship and then consider that it was the war on poverty's resultant destruction of the black family that derailed our progress. Blacks have a proud history of strength and self-reliance. That continues today despite the caricatures painted by those demanding reparations. I'm reminded of a student of mine who was wearing a t-shirt depicting a black person in chains with the words, I was not asked to be brought here. I asked her, aren't you glad you were? Her answer was, oh my goodness, yes. Ask Harris Biden voters if they think resources from 1776 Unites should be taught in all government schools. If they say no, ask them why not.